Good morning to all of you. Good morning, Grace Bible Church. Amen. Uh, It's truly a privilege to be able to be once again before God's word amongst God's people. It's always a privilege, and we must count it as a privilege to be able to freely worship the Lord our God. We hardly have any persecution. We have been given a great opportunity, and if we're going to have it, we might as well take advantage of it. Amen? Amen. There are brothers and sisters in different places who does not have the privileges as we have them today, who are worshiping in hiding, they're worshiping in secret, and here we are open next, next to a, um, a, uh, a mosque, <laughs> next to a mosque, it wouldn't come out, um, and we have the privilege of worshiping our God. And so I was just thinking about this as I was preparing Uh, We have a great opportunity here, and um, let's not waste it, right? Let's take advantage of it as we have already been doing, and so let's continue worshiping the Lord our God. To our visitors, we are glad to have you amongst amongst us today. Uh, Some are familiar to us, some are not, but uh, we're glad to have you amongst us today, and so we say to you, welcome. So if you would, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 9. We will continue in Hosea chapter 9. The Lord has been showing us some things about him and about how we ought to respond to him, how we can come to know him better. And so let us uh, continue as we look into the word of God. And we have to just be honest. Sometimes the word of God is just hard to swallow sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it, it's hard to receive at times. But what we can reflect upon is that whatever the Lord says, we know that it's good for us. And so we can contemplate that as we hear the word of God. So um, Hosea 9, this chapter begins in an interesting way. It addresses Israel's sins by instructing them not to rejoice, not to rejoice so fast considering they were heavily involved in sin. And so it's a reminder to us that when we come before God, we must come before God rightly. It doesn't seem right if we're holding sin or living in sin and yet trying to praise God and honor God as if he does not know. God knows everything about us. And so uh, in the beginning of this text, we see this. The chapter also reveals clear imagery that reflects God's relationship with his people. It shows Israel constant failure in keeping the law of God. As you know, they broke the covenant repeatedly and they were disloyal to the Lord their God. So we're going to see in the text what God has to say about this. And we're going to allow God to speak to us. So please follow along with me as I read today's passage. Hear now the word of the living God. 
Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offering of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you? Do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though... They give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. 
they shall be wanderers among the nations. Let us pray. Lord and our God, we know you to be a good God, a God who is loving and kind, but also a God who is just, who loves justice. Lord, we know that your word is true, even in times when it's hard to receive. We know that you are faithfully keeping your word. Not one dot or one tittle will pass away before your word is accomplished, O God. And so, Lord, we pray that your word will go forth, affecting our hearts and our minds, changing us, that we might indeed be the people of God that you have called us to be, watching out for sin and danger, remembering your word, remembering your warnings, remembering your promises. And Lord, we know that if we live according to your word, Lord, joy will fill us in our hearts and our minds no matter where we are, no matter what time it is in the day. Your word will comfort us. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that your word will save someone today. The one who does not know you as Lord and as Savior. May today be the day of salvation. May you draw them to yourself. That they might not know you just as a professor, but as one who truly knows you as Lord their God. Lord, I ask all these prayers. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. I've entitled today's sermon... Do you have a shallow, excuse me, shallow perspective? You know, we, we go through life and we all hold to a certain perspective. Uh, the whole world has a certain perspective that they've held to and that they are living by. And so... What I want us to do is consider for a moment the perspective we have about sin and the perspective we have about the judgment of God. So the question is, do you have a perspective, a shallow perspective about sin, or do you have a shallow perspective about the judgment of God? This is something we must consider. Because if it's something that's important to God, how much more should it be important to us? And so as we read through the text, let us be considering what God is saying about these things. What he has to say about sin, what he has to say about judgment. It does not disclude the grace of God. We understand the grace of God. But we also want to understand the judgment of God as well. 
So in these verses, as we read them again, we will see the severity of God's holiness against sin and his justice in judging it according to his divine justice. Let me ask you, how many of you up to this point have thought about actually the justice of God? Has it even crossed your mind? The justice of God. Sometimes we're, we're just going through life with our normal everyday routine. And because of it, we forget sometimes what God has spoken to us. And in our text this morning, we will see what appears to be swift judgment. Now, for some of us, we don't like it when God responds this way because for some reason, it just rubs us the wrong way and we don't like it. But what we must remember is that though God is merciful, though God is kind and gentle, he's also just. He's a just God. And so in many cases, we like hearing about the mercy of God. But when it's time to hear about the justice of God, we struggle with accepting it because the mercy of God is more comfortable. The mercy of God is easier for us to swallow when we hear about God's grace. We hear about God's mercy, his long-suffering, his forgiveness. We're attracted to those things. We feel good about those things. However, if we don't hear about the justice of God, we're not preaching Christ. We won't be able to appreciate the gospel Because we must lay it up against sin that we might appreciate God and what he has done for us. And so we want to approach the text with a high expectation that God is reminding us that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he's going to put up the posted signs so that we might not fall into the ditch. But rather, we might cruise on the highway, enjoying the scenes on both sides, all because we're in step with God because of what he's doing in our lives. And so we must hear all that God has to say. And so the justice of God helps us to remember that God carries out his divine righteousness because this satisfies him. Just as the mercy of God, just as his kindness and love makes us feel good, justice makes him feel good. He does what is right. And so we must embrace this reality. Because it brings glory to him. And God loves his glory and he is not willing to depart from it. 
God declares his justice. He wants it to be known so that he might be revered the more. So we've seen this. We've seen this before in the text. If we were to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 17, we find these words. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deed, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, things within the created order, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So these verses reminds us that when justice falls, God is just. The Lord always judges impartially according to each one's deeds. If we remember that God loves acting out his justice in a just way and right way, then we're also able to respond with reverence and understanding. So when there is justice, we can say God is right about that. When, when something happens to us as a consequence, we can say God is right about that. We can even say I deserve that. Because all of us know that God doesn't give us what we ultimately deserve. So the Lord enables us to go through life and we stumble and fail, but it doesn't go without discipline. For the scripture teaches us that those whom he loves, he does what? He disciplines. So our God will discipline us and this satisfies him. The Lord desires just deeds and he doesn't tolerate sin at all. All sin will be justly handled before the courtroom of God. The psalmist knew about God's just dealings and it was kept before their eyes constantly. So what do you think happened when they prayed? If they're reminded about the justice of God, do you think that affected their prayers? Of course it did. Of course it did. And so when we pray and we know that God will sometimes discipline us, we can be reminded that that discipline is good for us and it comes forth from the character of God. And so we're reminded of these things. So they also knew it. They knew that this pleased the Lord. And we're able to see this in Psalm 10, verses 12 through 14, where the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. 
Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you were not called to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. This is the reason why God says, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. He says, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. You're able to see what everybody else can't see. All the injustices, God is able to see all those things, and God can and will make it right. So far, we've mentioned some of the things about God's justice, not in, exhaustive, not in an exhaustive sense, but enough to prime the pump a little bit. But what's the cause of God's just, justice apart from his divine nature? It's sin, right? He applies this justice because of sin. God won't let sin reign. He might allow it for a while to express himself in love, that he might express himself in mercy and in compassion and long-suffering towards sinners. We do it with our own children. We don't come down on them as soon as they break our parental laws. Right? We don't bring mother and father's destruction upon them when they break our parental laws. We allow them to have a little bit of slack, to fall on their face, to mess up sometimes. And then we pat them on the back and we let them know we got to keep in step. We got to do the right thing. We got to go the right way. Then we let the slack out again. Well, if we do this, and we consider this a good thing, how much more shall God, our father, our daddy, how much more does he care for us and knows exactly, precisely what to give us at the exact time? We might stumble and fail being parents, and we have and will continue as long as we're on the face of this earth. But God... Never. No. No way, no can he, can he ever fail us. And so, we're reminded of this. Even though God might express his love, express his kindness and his mercy and long-suffering, we must beware because this doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. One day, God will return, and when he does, he's coming to rain down justice upon those who have earned it. God is always fair and just. So even if a person says, I don't want him, I don't want to know him, I don't want a life with him, God is going to say, this is the law, and I'm going to hold you accountable to the law of all that I have created. And you're either going to pass or fail. But there is hope. There's someone who can go in your stead. His name is 
the Christ, the son of the living God who came to save sinners. Yet he's the one, the one who is the redeemer. If you know him, he'll save you. If you come to him, he'll redeem you. And all that he have done will cover you. And you will be brought into the family of God as knowing him as true children of God through relationship, through the payment that was made on the cross, accepting it by faith. Jesus, the savior of our sins, is able to bring us near to God. And so your only hope is Christ. Those who have disobeyed the commands of God and have dishonored him and his name will one day face the awesome nature and judgment of God. In Isaiah 13, 11, the Lord states, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pump of arrogant. And lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This is God's promise to keep his word. Now, there's much more that can be said about these two subjects. But at least we have some perspective as we consider this hard text this morning. Let's, let's dive in. According to Exodus 3.12 and 5.1 through 3, we know that God brought the Israelites out of bondage from Egypt so that they might worship him. He gave them particular laws. He, he told them how to live, how they must conduct themselves. They must walk in step with what his word says and not according to all the other nations. God brought them forth that they might become worshipers. So if that be the case, then wouldn't it be even more offensive to God for his people to worship other gods who did not come and rescue them? They they didn't come and seek them out. They didn't come and save him. They didn't come and make them his own. But this is what God has done. And so we're, we're starting to feel the uneasiness about why this is offensive to God. And so in verse number one, the text says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. You've committed spiritual adultery, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitutes' wages on all threshing floors. You're accepting anything and everybody. The people of Israel were instructed not to rejoice with joy like the other nations do because they have been unfaithful to the Lord their God. They have given themselves up like prostitutes for hire by worshiping other gods. Israel have provoked the Lord to anger and there was no need to celebrate. They were guilty of spiritual adultery. So therefore, they needed not to carry on as if 
they were genuinely worshiping the Lord. They were used to celebrating the harvest and crediting God for it through an act of faith. But now they were viewing Baal as the source of their agricultural achievements. All of the the harvest that they had received that was now giving that credit to Baal. And they were rejoicing as as, as if it was a good thing. And so God calls them on it. So because of these failed attempts, there's no reason for them to rejoice. In the same way, when, when we, the church, attempt to be something God did not intend for us to be, we become like them. We become useless. And so the question to us is, are we being useful for God? Matthew 5, 13, the Lord Jesus himself says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, which is simply a reminder to us to be salt and to be light in which we are in Christ. Then in verse 2, it states that though they are coming, committing acts of treason, it says the threshing floor and wine vat should not feed them. This was something that they were used to. They were used to going to the festivals and having enough food and having enough wine. But it says the threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them and the new wine shall fail them. So now they would have a harvest too small for themselves and there would be no grapes for making wine. The reason being because they are about to go back into slavery. The very things they thought they had would give them satisfaction will be leaving them. Are you trusting in anything in this world that can leave you? Are you putting your hope in anything that could be lost or taken away from you? It's a reminder for us not to put our hope in the things of the created order, the things of the world, but we must trust solely in the Lord. Though the people kept on sinning against God, he never leaves them totally to their depraved minds to everything that they can think of. He doesn't lead them to their own thoughts, to their evil intentions. But the Lord, the Lord responds He understands that when people sin against him, there are repercussions and actions that follows. This applies to us too. 
Doesn't it? We know that when we don't carry out the word of God as we ought to, there sometimes are repercussions that are consequences to our actions. And we can't always erase them just because God has forgiven us. Sometimes we're still living with the sinful actions or sinful responses that we have uh, done years ago. We're still having to deal with those consequences. And so it's a reminder. It's a reminder to look to God, to walk by faith and not by sight. Listen again to verse 3. It says, they shall not remain in the land. Okay, so, so they're losing privilege. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. It's God's land. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. The Lord responds to their disobedience. He responds to his disobedient children. He judges his rebellious covenant people. And he says, no longer would they be able to stay in the Lord's land. Instead, Ephraim would return to Egypt. You would go back into slavery. I believe Egypt in this context represents slavery, but takes place really in Assyria, and there they would eat the food that was ceremonially unclean. They're going to be under the Assyrians, and because they are under their rule, they're going to eat their food. But this is not the kind of food God would accept. Verse 4 says, they shall not pour drink offering of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be their hunger. Only it shall not come to the house of the Lord. So there, the Israelite people will not make offerings of wine to the Lord. Neither would the people's sacrifices please the Lord. They would be unclean, like the food that they're touching, like the food that they're eating. God is considering them almost in a sense like a leper. You must live on the outside of the camp. And that's what sin does. It distances us from God. It, it, it doesn't allow us to be all that God would have us to be. And so there the Israelite people would not have the privileges that they once had. All They would be unclean like the fool and all who present such sacrifices would be defiled as well. Though they could eat the food, they couldn't offer it. Their food could only be used for their stomachs. So the question is asked, what will you do? On the day, verse 5, on the day of the appointed festival, when you come to the festivals, how would you participate? How would you participate on the day of the festive of the Lord? How would you participate on the Lord's day? The question is asked to them. 
So although the people were apostate, they still valued their festive celebrations. They still wanted, in a sense, to be accepted. And we see that today. People who have stumbled and fallen into sin, they still want to be accounted for. They still want to be considered God's people. But God says, no way. There there can't be fellowship when sin is in the camp. And so it's a reminder to us to deal with our sins immediately. In other words, they had the wrong perspective. They held to these festive holidays because they wanted a sense of security. Do you hold to anything that would give you a sense of security? If it's not the Lord, it's a false sense of security. Verse 6 says, For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. Even if they escaped, and this word is a little different in the original from our English word escape. Really, really, in the original, it, it simply means to go. You know, when, you, when we're thinking about escape, we're, we're thinking about slipping through or barely making it or, you know, almost getting our head chopped off. But, but here, it, it just simply means to go. And so, it, it, doesn't have, it doesn't carry the same weightiness like our English word in, in this context. So, so, in other words, they must go away from destruction, But Assyria, so they would try to go away from destruction. They would try to avoid it. But the text says, but Assyria, or you could say Egypt, but Egypt or Assyria will conquer them. And then he adds, Memphis will bury them. Memphis is a capital city where the Egyptian kings made their principal residence. There's no escape. Nettles, it said, would take over their treasure of silver and thorns, would evade their tents. There would be weeds growing around those things that are precious. Now, now when when I read this, I found that this is a strange depiction because we know that if we saw nettles around a bag of cash... It won't be there. We will clean those nettles out. We will clean the weeds out. We might just step over the weeds, grab the cash, and go on our way. And so this is the picture here that seems kind of strange in the text, but maybe the writer meant it that way. Maybe this is a strange depiction because if nettles were around some of the things that were precious, I don't... I don't think they would have simply just walked by. But they also would have removed them and have taken them. So maybe this has more to do about with the writer using sarcasm about how they won't be safe no matter what. In in verse 7 it says, the days of punishment have come. You're not safe. The days of recompense 
have come. You're not safe. Israel, you shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity. Great and great hatred. The days of Israel's punishment has come. The day of payment and retribution was at hand. Israel knows this all too well. They've been in bondage before. And so, they say because of their great sin and hostility, they say the prophets are crazy and inspired men are fools. The prophets is the watchman in verse 8 of Ephraim, and my God, yet a father's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. So the prophet was the watchman over Ephraim, Israel, at first formerly with God, but they became pretenders. At one time, they were worthy ministers close to God and was in regular fellowship with him, but eventually they became ringleaders of all kinds of corruption. They became hateful and hurtful towards those who stood for righteousness. They they were opposed to everything good. They were also very deceptive, so much so that they masqueraded around as men who spoke on the behalf of God. They were the worst of all men sinning against God and plotting to act out their evil intentions against God's people. The scripture describes them as the one who hunts wild birds. And he hunts them for food. He says, they were a fowler's snare in all their ways, drawing people into their traps to catch them for personal use and various forms of evil. This led to nothing but hostility in the house of God. It's a reminder to us as a church that when someone speaks outside the scriptures and to have conversation with them. We're not to allow that to be spread amongst God's people because it brings division. It brings hostility in the house of God. Verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. The Israelites have sunken deep in depravity. They were deeply depraved. They were a deeply depraved people full of corruption. They were as depraved as those who sinned in Gibeah long ago. It's interesting that Gibeah is used because Gibeah was the same place that Saul was raised up as king. God was enough for his people, but his people wanted to be like the other nations. And so here, the the reference refers back to Gibeah. And so the text says, 
You're just as depraved as those who are in Gibeah long ago. And he will punish them for their sins. The text says he will not forget their wickedness. But here's the, here's the, uh, the, the sweetness of the text, if you would. If there is a sweetness in the text, verse 10 uh, kind of reflects that. Verse 10 says, like grapes in the wilderness. Isn't that kind of strange? Grapes in the wilderness? He says, I found Israel like the first fruit, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal, Peor, and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they love. In other words, God took the initiative to establish a covenant between him and his people. He delighted in them and made them special through a covenant. He wrote down on the covenant that I am your God and you must be my people. You must obey my commands. God reflects that I remember you. I remember our relationship when it came into being. You were like grapes in the wilderness. In other words, as if God says, you were refreshing to me. God found Israel, it was like finding fresh grapes in a dry place. Who finds grapes in a desert? We know that this is a strange thing, but God described his experience with his people, which he found them. And when he saw their ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the seasons. But then they deserted the Lord and instead worshiped Baal of Peor. For they gave themselves to a shameful idol. And afterwards, they became detestable like the idol. They essentially became an abomination. They were a vile people. And so verse 11 says, now your glory is gone. You won't be that special people. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no prosperity, I'm sorry, no pregnancy and no conception. Israel's glory would be lost because of their actions before the face of God. It will fly away like a bird. Ephraim's children will not be born or grow in the womb, nor will there be any conceptions. All those things which we would consider as prosperity stated here in the text, no more. No more birth, no more pregnancy, no more conception. Then verse 12, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them to none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. That would be a terrible day, day 
for the Lord to leave us at any point to ourselves. Future generations would be affected by the sins of these Israelites. That's essentially what the text is saying. Even if God allows children to grow up for a season, he would eventually take every one of them away from their families because of the sins of their parents. God is erasing a generation of people because of Israel's sins. It would be a terrible day in those days. Woe to them, the text says, when the Lord turns away and depart from them. This is a reminder to us that our sin once again have repercussions that we can't always account for. Verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young plant, planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his people, his children, out of slaughter. The Lord have watched Ephraim become as beautiful as a young palm. I think some of your translations might say tyrant. Others, um, um, translating this as tyrant, is, 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 I, I don't know why, but uh, other translations have, have tyre or tyre, but I think the writer is trying to describe that Ephraim as being well protected from danger. If you look on a map, Tyre falls in the center of all of these countries, and it's right next to a body of water. It seems to be like an island, so it was hard to conquer. Eventually, Rome would conquer it one day. They would build up a, a, a bridge, in a sense, of sand, and would eventually get over there. And a lot of countries would have a problem with, with this island because they could not conquer it. But, but here, it says Ephraim had, be, well, had become as a beautiful young poem, well-protected. It's kind of like if we have something that's precious to us. Might even have a safe for it. I think this is the picture here. And so, um, verse um, 14. It says, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. And here, uh, we see the prophet's prayer Oh, Lord, what should I request from you for your people? I ask for wombs that don't give birth and breasts that don't give milk. Make the wombs miscarry and cause the breasts to be dry. Um, this is uh, a reflection of the justice of God. Verse 15, every evil of theirs in Gilgal, there I begin to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. The Lord mentions that all of Israel's wickedness and sin begin in Gilgal. Gilgal is recognized as the main place for idol worship. In a sense, it's the hub 
of every form of idol worship you can imagine. This is where God's people is. This is their minds. This is how they're thinking. They've stooped to this level that they're recognized as worshipers at Gilgal. And so you can imagine the anger of the Lord being stirred up. The text says that the Lord started hating them. He planned to drive them from the land he had given them because of their evil actions before the Lord. They forgot that they were only tenants in the Lord's land. The Lord would not only send them away, but he refused to love them any longer Because their leaders were corrupt, they were a rebellious people in the face of God. And so we want to ask ourselves, are we rebelling against God in any way? We're rushing to a close. Then verse 15 is followed up by another metaphor Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. In other words, the people of God will have to live in and endure famine-like conditions, and no one will be able, able to deliver them. This, in a sense, is a restatement of verses 11 through 13. And then finally, verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel is returning to and is given over to their original status. So that special place that they had with God as his special people, God is placing them back to their original status. They will be outsiders again and a wandering nation because of, the, because of their rebellion. And we know that the people of God wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion. Every sinner who is outside of Christ is a wanderer without a savior. And I would encourage you today to look to Christ because no sinner will be able to run from God's justice You're not fast enough. There's nowhere to hide because God will see you wherever you are. Everything lies bare before the face of God. Your thoughts, your intentions, your desires, your actions, anything out of step with God in disobedience, you're going to have to account for that. Unless you're hoping in Christ. If you're hoping in Christ and you're trusting in his payment for you on the cross, 
that when he died and shed his blood for your sins, you can be made right with God through his sacrifice. His righteousness will be transferred to you. You will have the righteousness of Christ and be enabled to enter the kingdom of God, not by your good works, not by your deeds, solely by the work of Christ. So, Christ is our only hope. We must run to him and be saved. Those who are made right with God are the only ones who are fit for his kingdom. And no profession in the world will save sinners apart from genuine repentance. For those who speak and do not practice their faith is only flattering themselves. But one day, as we have learned it, it will all come to an end. Christ died to set sinners free from the holy wrath of God. Believe in him, repent, and be saved. Change your perspective. Know him as your Lord and as your Savior. Let us pray. Lord and our God, we've heard your word. Apply your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.